Okay, well, as I mentioned in prayer, we are in Galatians chapter 2. We're just going to be taking four verses today. And I decided I wanted to do an entire sermon on these four verses because it's one of my favorite um, moments in the book of Galatians. Uh, and and it, as I went into study time this week, I, I value it so much more than even I did going into that study time. There's so much we can learn from just these four verses. You know, it was about five years ago, I was at a conference, a ministry conference, and uh, it was, it's called Together for the Gospel. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it was a, a conference that took place every two years in Louisville, Kentucky, and man, thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors would show up to the Yum Yum Center, the, like the worst name ever for a, a conference center, the Yum Yum Center. Um, but we, we, we'd gather there, and uh, man, it would, it would always be just an awesome time of just being challenged by so many different scholars and theologians and things like that. Well, it, you could sign up for the pre-conference, like the, the actual conference. It had, I don't know if there were 7,000 pastors in there, 10,000 pastors in, in that arena. But you, you sign up for the pre-conference, and you could, you could go to these breakout sessions with different scholars and things like that. And I saw a pre-conference uh, breakout session that I wanted to be a part of, and it was uh, about longevity and ministry. You don't want to be in ministry for the long haul. You, you know, you don't want to get burnt out. You you want to you want to stick with this. I'm like, hey, how, you know, I, I started my the only career I've ever known is is full time ministry, and, and I started my career as a pastor. I want to end my career, uh, you know, retire a pastor and, and things like that. That's life goals, man. But being a pastor is hard sometimes. So I I, I want to. I want to come learn from somebody that talks, that's going to talk about longevity and ministry. And it was taught by John MacArthur, who's a very well-known pastor and Greek scholar. And he's talking about longevity and ministry. Ministry's hard everywhere, by the way. It's hard all over the place. But that dude has done it in L.A. for like 60 years. So if there's a harder place to do ministry than Marriott, Ohio, that would certainly be on the list, I would think. And because um, that place is crazy. But anyway... He, he, uh, he, he shared a lot of uh, perspectives and uh, shared a lot of stories from his, his time. I mean, I, I actually had to look it up how old John MacArthur is. He's 84 years old today, which if you hear this guy, he's, still, he's preaching right now, probably. He's 84 years old. And so this was five years ago, right? He was just a young 79 years old when he's doing this little breakout session that I was a part of, a couple hundred people in the room. And, and it, was, it was just kind of a cool, intimate setting to hear that. Uh, hear, hear an old veteran, veteran, you know, telling stories, uh, you know, about the, being a pastor. So he, he said, you know, there was, there's several things that you need in or, to happen in your life if you're going to live out this faith and be a pastor for the long haul. And there was one point in particular that really stuck out to me. He said, there's something you should place a really high value on if you're going to make it. And, and, and here's, here's what it is. He said, you need to be able to be rebuked. You need to be able to receive rebuke. You need to be able to receive criticism. from The good and the bad. You need to be able to deal with it, process it, see if there's any truth to it, self-reflect when, you know, when it comes your way. And, of course, immediately I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy has over, like, 60 years of experience. He's, like, you know... Um, he's got more degrees than Fahrenheit, and he's, uh, have, he's, he's a guy that has all these answers, right? Who gets to, who gets to rebuke John MacArthur? I, I couldn't help but wonder that immediately. Who gets to rebuke this guy? And so he shared stories 
of leadership in his church that rightfully uh, rebuked him at times, sometimes wrongfully. But he shared one rebuke. He said, you know, I'll give you an example of someone who rebuked me and it changed my life. He told a story about his wife. <laughs> he, said, he said, one day my wife came to me and she was frustrated with me. We had been dealing with some things at the church and, and I was being hard on our congregation. And she came to me and she said, John, you tell these people week after week to live these holy lives and do all of this stuff. You can't even pull off half of what you tell them to do. She said, you can't even live up to, to half the person you instruct them to be. Ouch. I'm like, oh man, was it a cold night at home that night? Like, what, how did that pan out? But he, he said, that was the best thing I could have possibly heard. He's like, the more I thought about that, the more, I truth, the more truth I found in what she was saying. And it really did change how he was living. It really did change his perspective on how he was preaching and things like that. He, he said it was such a valuable experience, and she was right. I think, man, I hope I value criticism like that. I say it like that because I know I don't. But do you value correction in your life? Do you value rebuke in your life? You know, if you're somebody who says you're not perfect, you should value correction, right? To err is human. Well, of course I'm going to get stuff wrong. Okay, then are you open then to uh, being rebuked? Now, I, I think uh, so many people, whenever this subject comes up, or well, it sounds nice, I guess it sounds nice to say, oh, sure, I can receive criticism. Oh, yeah, I got tough skin. Uh, you know, I can, I, can, I can be rebuked, I can be corrected. Uh, but when you're the one receiving that criticism, it doesn't feel quite so easy, right? A lot of people are just so afraid. When we get criticized, we, we immediately resort to fear because it threatens our perfect self-image and, and we want to protect it. And how do we protect it? Well, we get mad. We get full of rage. We go on the offense. How dare you say something about me like that? I can't stand that. You know, I, I'm excited about this passage today because we're going to see a moment that causes us to reevaluate the value we place on rebuke. We get to see how it's needed, how it works, why it's needed. Hopefully, as a result of studying in Galatians chapter 2 today, just these four verses, I hope that you and I can walk away from this study valuing the concept, and not only valuing the concept but being willing to be the type of person who can be, uh, be rebuked, be criticized, and it not be so devastating. And it not throw you into a, a panic because you're wrong about something. I mean, we're, we're, again, we're just studying four verses today, and it's a moment in which the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Galatian churches, plural, he, he wrote that letter to them, and he tells them about a time in which Peter, the Apostle Peter, visits Antioch Church, that's in this group of churches in Galatia, and the Apostle Paul rebukes the Apostle Peter publicly in front of everyone. What do you think of the implications that are there? There are many. I feel like we could do more than one week studying these four verses to really think about how this should play out in our lives. But So, so this morning we're studying yet another moment in which the Apostle Peter is being rebuked in, in Scripture. This is the less known one, right? We all know the last time uh, he was rebuked in Scripture. We studied it in Mark, right? When, when we were going through Mark, we studied it, and Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan! He calls him Satan. Like, that's a, the most famous rebuke in all of the Bible, right? 
Well, this is yet another rebuke that the Apostle Peter needed in his life. Another situation. This time it's coming from Paul to Peter. And so I want to challenge you today as we think about the details and the implications of this truth. I want to challenge you to not do this. Don't think about all the people in your life that need rebuked. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what's the, that's what's so easy to do, right? Oh, yeah, you, you're feeling a little bit of righteous anger right now. Rebuke, let's bring it up. Let's talk about it. I know tons of people in my life that need rebuked. I'm sitting next to them right now, right? Yeah, that's that's the, the inclination that we have because we always have to be right about everything. I want to challenge you to set that aside, set your list aside. That list might even be right, right? You probably got some people on that list, and you're right. They do need rebuke, and I wish they would hear it just like you do. Set that list aside, and I want you to re reflect on yourself. I want you to challenge yourself. Do I need rebuked? Do I typically receive that criticism well? Do I value it? You know, if that's intimidating to you today, I got great news. This gospel that we believe, that we live for, it empowers us to be able to receive rebuke and criticism. That's one of the ways in which it functions. It helps us to, to see those blind spots in our life, and, and we, we can see those blind spots because we have trusted people in our life to point them out to us when, when they need pointed out. And so if, you're, if your heart is, you just feel like, man, I just, you know, again, some people, they just can't afford it. They can't afford to be criticized because they don't want to be taken down a notch, they're, they're too fragile. If you can't afford to be criticized and it throws you into a panic, you're probably not resting in the peace that the gospel offers. And so I want to show you how to do that and why you should do that because there's great value in it. The whole church benefits when you're able to receive good and right criticism in your life. Because if your identity is wrapped up in Christ, right, you don't have to white-knuckle your image. You don't have to hang on to that so tightly because we're, we're free to be real about who we are. We're free to be real about where we're at, the season of life we're in, and what's going on, and how we don't have it all right. We're free to admit that. Christ frees us up because our identity isn't in our image. Our identity is in his perfection. He was perfect for us. Our identity is wrapped up in that. And when, and when that happens, when that begins to click in your life, you're free to admit when you're wrong. You're free to admit, uh, I needed that. I can listen to that rebuke. Okay, let's get started. You know what? We're just going to take one verse at a time. I, I, sometimes when I preach, I read a whole paragraph to you and talk about it. Sometimes you go one verse at a time. Since there's just four, let's just go one verse at a time. We're starting at verse 11 in chapter 2, Galatians verse 11, chapter 2. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He's setting the scene here. Cephas, I'll remind you, is Aramaic for the name Peter. So, you know, when you're speaking Aramaic and stuff, they're, they're calling him Cephas. They're not saying Peter. All right, so, so Peter, the, the scene changes in here in Galatia. Let me tell you about a time in which Peter comes to Antioch, one of the churches in Galatia. And when he was there, I had to oppose him to his face. In other words, Paul is writing to those Galatian churches saying, hey guys, remember that time we were hanging out and the Apostle Peter came from Jerusalem to visit us? When he was there, I opposed him to his face in front of everybody. Why? Because Peter stood condemned 
That's biblical lingo for he was super duper wrong. What was he wrong about? You know, if you, if you know me, I, I love, I, I love to preach about the Apostle Peter. He's just the most relatable guy, I think, in Scripture as far as a follower of God. He, he, he's just so inspirational. Um, and it, it really feel I like studying the Apostle Peter and, and the events in his life because it makes it feel attainable. You got this knucklehead that just gets it wrong over and over and over, and that's the kind of guy I can relate to. And so if God can use a guy like that, and you know, he's all hard, he's full of blunders, man, that's my hero. Like, cool. I'm so glad he is in the Bible. I'm so glad he's a part of this gospel story that takes place in the New Testament. Like, we get to study his life and, and examine his mistakes, and every single time we do that, with any sort of realness whatsoever, we see a little bit of ourselves in there, and we see a little bit of that response and attitude that Peter often displays in his life and when he gets it so wrong. We can learn from his mistakes and, and relate to his mistakes. So I want to encourage you to do that today. He was doing something wrong. He didn't think it was wrong, but he was doing something wrong. Somebody called him out on it, and he needed that. You and I need the same thing. We're not above it either. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, a.k.a. the guys came from Jerusalem, some Jews came from Jerusalem. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, so it's hard for us, it's hard for us to appreciate the magnitude of what Paul just said in that one single verse. There's a lot of cultural dynamics at play, and I want to share them with you. Like, we're so separated from living under the old covenant laws. Like, when you were a Jew back in that day, you wanted to follow the law of God, but then all these rabbis would write new laws and more rules that you had to, to follow, rituals, rites, and everything like that. And, and we're so far removed from that, what Paul was saying there was an explosive sentence. He was saying that Peter was being a Jew, Whenever he would hang out with the Gentiles, he would, he would pretend to be a Jew. When he was hanging out with, with, I'm sorry, when he was hanging out with just Gentiles, he'd act like a Gentile. When he was hanging out with the Jews, he'd act like a Jew. And when you were acting like a Jew, when you were, you were living under all of these rules and regulations, what you got to understand is they had to follow all of these dietary laws to a T. There's so many laws and rites and rituals, they were like cleansing laws, clean laws is what they're referred to. And so it's a complicated series of regulations and, and, and ceremonial uh, rites that you had to go through in order to be presentable for worship. If you wanted to participate in the worship of Yahweh, you had to be clean. So they, they, they followed all of these rules because when you followed the rules, you could draw near to God. If you didn't follow the rules, you could not draw near to God. That's how important they were. So again, it's, it's strange to us when we hear all of that because y'all just got up and came here, right? Didn't follow any ritual or rite or anything like that before you walked in the door, didn't do any like ceremonial cleansing or anything like that before you, you took your seat here. But that's the world they grew up in. And so you think about this, like why, why you ever wonder, why did God have them go through all of that stuff? Why did God call to himself a people group and make him do all this stuff? Well, there's lots of answers for that, but one answer is this, and it's really important to you and I. That played out that way so that you and I could have a framework to understand the gospel, so that we could know what it means. 
So for these Jews to worship, they had to go through all of these rites. And what it taught them is that in order to be in the presence of God, you have to be clean. He is perfectly clean. You are dirty with sin. Therefore, you need to do something in order to be presentable to God and be in his presence. He's perfectly holy. He doesn't tolerate the filth of sin in his presence. And so follow these rules, and it will clean off the filth. It was a way that they demonstrated to themselves and to everyone in the world. We know who God is, and he is perfectly holy, and we are not. We need to be clean. So here was the issue with that. You've got to follow all these rites and rituals and live a certain way in order to be clean before God. Well, that's really tough because we're constantly sinning, aren't we, right? There was never enough to do in order to cleanse all of that sin. No matter how much anyone tried, they would never get completely clean or permanently clean. It always led to more sin. And so if so, they, they, they realize here what, the, what following the law taught Jews in that day and teach us, teaches us still today is that if anybody was going to be eternally clean, permanently clean, in order to be worthy to be in the presence of God forever, it's going to take a miracle. And so in the Old Testament, you read all these prophetic books, God would speak to the prophets and communicate to his people, I'm going to deliver that miracle to you. I'm going to provide that miracle that you can be permanently clean. It will be my Messiah. My Messiah will clean you forever. And you will be permanently uh, suitable to exist with me for eternity. And Jesus was that Messiah. See how the law provided this framework still that we use today to understand why Jesus is so important? I mean, we need a miracle in order to be presentable to God. Jesus is that miracle. He is our Messiah. He fulfilled all of the demands of the law he lived up to it perfectly, and he did it for us. And so now when we put faith in Jesus, we're putting faith in everything that he did and not a single thing that we do. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the radical, radical change that was taking place in the lives of the apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's the gospel that Peter preached. That's the gospel that Paul preached. It all matched up. But, you know, being able to articulate that gospel and being able to live out that gospel are two different things, aren't they? Right? I mean, you can have a lot of right answers. You can know what the Bible says. You can believe it. You can articulate it. But if you actually want to live that out, that's a whole other battle. You guys, are you guys fighting that battle? <laughs> I hope so. But Peter is struggling here in this moment. Peter's a work in progress. He, he was a work in progress just like you and I. But before Jesus changed everything, he was so used to that law-abiding lifestyle of the Jew. Rules like you couldn't eat any pork. You couldn't eat at a table with a Gentile. If you did those things, you were unclean, unfit to worship. You could not even go into a Gentile's house. They were careful in how they interacted with anyone who wasn't Jew because they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. When a Gentile acquaintance or friend came over, you couldn't even let them in your house because it would make your whole house unclean. Your whole family would be unclean. They were, again, just years and years, a whole life of following these rules. But then after the gospel hits, after Jesus happens, they're free. They're free from the, the requirements of the law so they could commune with Gentiles now. They were able to sit across the table and have a meal. They were able to 
they were able to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp for the first time. It was a big deal, right? Monumental deal. We're still talking about it. That's your homework text, by the way. If you want to read a passage of Scripture that complements what we're talking about today, read Acts chapter 10. You literally get to read about the first time Peter hangs out with a Gentile named Cornelius, and he starts eating pork. Imagine, right, the, the joy of having bacon for the first time. Well, you get to read about it in Acts chapter 10. That's a great compliment to what we're studying today. But now, living in light of the gospel, Peter wasn't unclean, participating in these, uh, not having participated in these rites and rituals that he grew up doing. And so, Peter, uh, Peter was living out freedom in Christ most of the time, but evidently not all of the time. And Paul noticed a moment in which what he preached didn't match up with how he was living. So a bunch of Jews, they're, they're, Peter's there in, in Antioch with all the Gentile converts, and, and when he's hanging out with the Gentiles, right, he's, they're having pork. Pork chops are on the grill. They're having a great time. He's going in their home. They're, coming, they're hanging out with him and everything like that. But when Jews came from Jerusalem, uh-oh, i got to act like a good Jew because the other Jews are here. And so what Peter did, it says that he drew back and separated himself. He stopped eating at the table with the Gentiles. He stopped eating the things that they were eating. And he started acting like a good, law-abiding Jew again. He was avoiding the Gentiles and following dietary laws. That's what that means. What's even worse than that is that he started taking other people down that road with him. He was sinning. He was not living in the freedom of Christ and then he started convincing other Jews just by observing his life into doing the exact same thing. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. You know, like Paul and Barnabas. Even Barnabas was acting like that. Peter always preached that Jesus was enough, but he wasn't living it in the moment. So, again... Peter preached the same gospel that Paul, James, and John preached. That was, we learned that just in the previous paragraph, right? But we're past that now, and, and, and Peter is now living complete, in complete hypocrisy. He's not practicing what he preached. He's acting like Jesus isn't enough. He's acting like you've got to follow all of these rules and all of these laws in order for God to love you. And so Paul calls him out on it. He says you're a hypocrite, full of hypocrisy. That's a really important word to know uh, in the Bible. And uh, when you know how they understood that word, it actually uh, makes that word uh, mean so much more. That's an old Greek theater term. And so there was a type of actor in Greek culture called a hypocrite. And when they would put on a play, you could have just a couple of individuals put on a full production with multiple roles because they were hypocrites. And what they did was, if, if I was an actor in that play, I would have three masks over here. And when I would play one role, I would put on this mask and act out that part. But when it was time for a different person, I'd set down that mask, and I'd put on this mask over here, and then I would play that part in the play. It's me the whole time, but I'm fooling people into thinking I'm someone else. Then I'd put that mask down, and I'd pick up a third mask and put that on. That was a hypocrite. And so you look, what a perfect slam right what a perfect word to describe what peter was guilty of 
when the Gentiles were around, he'd put on the Gentile mask, and he would, he would, you know, participate in Gentile things, and, 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 adhere to one gospel. And then he, when the Gentiles weren't around, it was just the Jews around, he would put on a, the Jew mask and behave like a Jew and eat like a Jew and walk and talk like a Jew, like the gospel didn't matter anymore. And so P Paul's calling him out on it. He's calling him out in front of everybody. There's not two gospels, there's one gospel. Have you ever met someone that, that does that, religious, that does that, you know? Like they say, they're, man, they're, man, they live the church life, right? They show up, they do all the right stuff, say all the right stuff, but when you really observe their life, you're like, huh, what? You know, you can confess the gospel all day long, but if your life doesn't align with that gospel, you are, in essence, denying that gospel, okay? So you may not be saying it's wrong with your words, but you're saying it's wrong with your actions. And I'm telling you, if any of us are willing to self-reflect even a little bit today, you'll see that you are that hypocrite. So am I. We're all hypocrites in here. This, this label that Peter receives from Paul, we need, to, we need to just be honest with ourselves and each other and, and think, boy, Peter sure is relatable, isn't he? Hadn't there been times in your life and you, know, you, you associate with the church, you, you study the gospel, you say you live in it, but then, man, maybe this week is like, oh, that didn't line up. You're the hypocrite. You're the hypocrite. And what we're learning today in Scripture is that there's a remedy. There's a help that we have. Yeah, you are, but that's not the end of the story. You know, good actors are actors that fool us, right? Good, the, the best actors there are are the actors that make us really not like them in real life because of a role we saw them play. You ever have that happen to you? Like you're watching a movie and the villain is just so good at being a villain that like when you see them in a different movie or just like, you know, on a, a TMZ article or something, you're like, oh, I hate that guy. That's, that's Voldemort. Wow, man, I can't stand him. You know, those are the actors. Like when I feel myself genuinely not liking a person, I'm like, they're a phenomenal actor because they, they have fooled me into having these emotions towards them. Well, there is no actor in your life that fools you more than yourself. You will dupe yourself so many times without knowing it. And I, I think that's what's happening with, with Peter here. You know, when we fool ourselves, when we get duped by our old self, what we do is we can fall back into old familiar sins so easily. There, we're, we, there's comfort there. We can do it without even meaning to do it. We can do it without even noticing I mean, just falling back into your old ways and relapsing back to who you were and not even noticing, in that, noticing that. When that happens, let me just tell you, it is a pure gift when you are known by people and they have the relational collateral with you that they can actually step into your life and say, hey, you've taken a wrong turn. You're going the wrong way. That was Paul for Peter in this moment. Paul cared about Peter enough and he had the relational collateral with him he had the truth on his side and so he spoke up and here's what Paul said look at verse 14 but when I saw that their care that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel I said to Cephas before them all if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews you ever see like an old western film where they're in the saloon there's a lot of noise the piano's playing and all of a sudden like something happens and everything just gets real silent 
I, think, I just imagine like that's the type of moment that took place in that moment. And, and, that, and right what Paul's talking about. They're, they're sitting around and they're eating and, and the Jews have separated themselves and they've reverted back to these old covenant laws. And, and there Peter is, he's, he's participating in all of that wrongness there. And Paul just calls them out in front of everybody. When someone's sinning like that, what a joy and privilege it is to be a, a part of a, a church body that someone would call you out on it. You think like, oh, wait a second, did Paul follow Matthew 18? When you're supposed to confront somebody, you've got to follow Matthew 18. You hear about Matthew 18? You've got to follow Matthew 18. Everybody's obsessed with Matthew 18, and rightfully so. It's a wonderful way to confront your brother in love. Follow Matthew 18. But Matthew 18 doesn't, doesn't meet every requirement in every scenario. Sometimes you've got to follow Galatians 2. You don't need to go to him privately behind the scenes when nobody knows. You don't need to then get a, a brother, another brother and confront them with two or three people. You don't need to take them uh, b- before the church after doing those first two things. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time, follow Matthew 18, but not every time. You go straight to the, to the calling them out before the church in this scenario. In Galatians 2, Peter has sinned publicly, and so Paul has called him out publicly. That's how that works. Sometimes in life, you got to use Galatians 2. It's way more awkward. <laughs> you know, like, like calling someone out privately behind closed doors and in a more intimate setting, that's awkward enough. It's never fun. That's awkward enough, but having to do it publicly sometimes is just so necessary, and it is super, super duper awkward. He says in front of all of them, their con- he says, their, you know, he notices their, their, con- their conduct is not in step with the gospel. Paul's just like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call a spade a spade right now. This doesn't match up. And so he does it. How did he do it? We're not given those details. We just know that he called him out publicly and in the setting. But like, what was Paul's demeanor? You know, was it like Columbo? You ever like the, watch the old show Columbo when he, when he finally calls out the bad guy? I don't know if it went down like that. You know, uh, so Peter, he's, either Peter is sitting with all these law-abiding Jews acting like he's a law-abiding Jew at that moment. And Paul would walk in and say, hey, Peter. You know how your favorite fruit in the whole world now is suddenly bacon-wrapped shrimp? Like, like you love that more than anything else. You know how that, that, that's like your favorite now? Hey, and, and remember, you know how the, the issue is circumcision with you Jews. You think every Gentile convert has to be circumcised or their conversion doesn't count, their salvation doesn't count, all that stuff. I wonder, I wonder, if you get to act like uh, if you get to live in the freedom of the gospel and, and live like a Gentile at times and, and not observe dietary laws when you're over here, I wonder how it is that you could possibly force them to follow these rules that you yourself don't even follow, Peter. See, the, 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 the inconsistencies that Paul clearly points out, you've been living in the freedom of the gospel, they should get to live in it too. And he's saying it in front of a bunch of people who don't agree with that. It took a lot of courage. You know, I, in a way, you know, Peter being that hypocrite, it's, it's just like Paul went up and just ripped off the mask and said, hey, here's who he really is, guys, and then throws the mask down and stomps on it, you know. But again, I, I hope when you and I, when we, when we think about this scenario, I hope you know that that's what real church looks like. Like it's, it's messy, it's, you know, people are messy, we are responsible for encouraging one another and helping one another, but we're also responsible for rebuking one another. We need that. If you want to do real church, 
and very few people who attend church do. But if you want to do real church, part of it's encouraging and part of it's rebuking. It's just, it comes with the territory. Sometimes we need it or nothing changes in our life. We don't like it because we don't like confrontation. We avoid confrontation like the plague, right? Just leave them alone. Isn't it more loving to leave them alone? Isn't that what love looks like? No, not in the Bible. Love is something very specific in the Bible. Love in the Bible is having the courage to confront when you see someone going the wrong way. And abiding in the gospel means being able to receive that love and trust that love and being willing to listen to a Christian's rebuke in your life. You're willing to examine your life and be rebuked. And you're willing to be open to the truth that could be there. And you don't have to be frantic about it. You don't have to panic. And being willing to receive rebuke is such a benefit of the church. And, and it's the gospel that empowers us to receive that. Have, have there been times in your life in which you can say, you know what, I received that rebuke well? Because we've all been criticized, sometimes wrongfully, sometimes rightfully. Have there been times in your life that you can think of that you're like, you know what, I received that well. That was good. <laughs> that was enjoyable. Or is, does it tend to be the case that in your life when someone rebukes you, before they even get through the entire sentence, you're already on offense attacking them? If you're married, you know a little bit of something about that, right? Did your spouse ever criticize you before and before they finish the sentence? I know where you're going with this. You do this, 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 and this. Like, oh, man. Chill out. What are you afraid of, right? Are you afraid of something? Are you afraid something I say might be true? Chill out. We're not perfect. We should be open to the fact that someone else has noticed that and wants to say something. We don't have to be afraid but when you think you always got to be right about everything, when someone says you're wrong, it's terrifying. You know, people go to rage and panic. How, I can't believe they said that. Do you notice we're not even told how Peter responds to that rebuke? That's, this is the, when I read the Bible, this is where my imagination runs wild. How did Peter respond to that when Paul just calls him out in front of everybody? We know how explosive Peter can be, like chopping off ears and stuff and going nuts. Like, Peter is an explosive human being. He's very passionate. Did he stand up and throw a chair across the room like Bobby Knight or whatever? I mean, did he freak out? I don't know. Or did he just, had he finally been humbled enough by that point in his life in which he heard that rebuke and he's embarrassed in front of everybody, maybe he just put his head down and said, all right, let's do this. You're right. I bet it was a combination of the two. Uh, you know, I, I bet maybe, maybe he threw the chair one day. <laughs> in the moment, he probably threw the chair. And the next day, maybe he comes to his senses after some time in prayer and takes Paul and says, man, I am so sorry I acted like that. You ever have to go back to your spouse the next day? I'm, I know I'm not the only one in here that's had to do that. Hey, when I responded to your criticism, I was an idiot. <laughs> if you haven't said that to your spouse before, dude, you're not even trying. You got <laughs> like, uh, that, we're all in that scenario, right? I don't know how Peter responded, but I know that he's a work in progress, and I know that that rebuke that he experienced was probably one of the more embarrassing moments in his life. Here he is, this leader in the church, like Peter. Like, what, I mean, you talk about a significant leader in the church, like chain of command, he seems to be near the top there, and he's the one that's called out in front of everybody. I, I think, and I think we have reason in Scripture, well, we, do, we have tons of reason in, reasons in Scripture to believe that he received it well. 
But one of, the, one of the points of evidence I want to point you to is in 2 Peter. You know that when we're studying the book of Galatians, I told you when we started this series, this is one of the first New Testament letters that was ever written. Chronologically, if you put them in order, there's probably only one other New Testament letter that was written earlier than Galatians, and that was 1 Thessalonians. But when you, when you put them in order, one of the last books ever written in the New Testament, the last letter, was the book of 2 Peter, chronologically speaking. It wasn't the last, but it was near the end. And in 2 Peter, you actually hear the Apostle Peter talking about the Apostle Paul. And how he talks about him is so endearing. He talks about Paul, like he uses the word, our beloved brother Paul. He encourages the Christians that he's writing to, listen to Paul. I know it's hard to understand Paul sometimes, but listen to him. Profit from what he has to teach you. We love him. We need him. You need him too. Paul is a good dude. He's, he's putting a stamp of approval on Paul. The very guy that called him out in front of everybody and embarrassed him because he, he was sinning, sinning publicly, he, he, he actually, I think it strengthened the relationship. Wow, he had the courage to say that to me. He must really care about me. You know, when someone rebukes you in love and, and you profit from that rebuke, you do develop a special appreciation for that person. You want to have relationships like that in your life. You probably may only be able to count all of those relationships on one hand at any given time. But when you have that, you appreciate it. And Peter appreciated Paul. He was able to understand that the gospel was more important than his ego. Do you understand that? Do you have to be so right every single time that you, you think you're above the gospel? It's the gospel that frees us up to hear that criticism. You know, you, you think of the ramifications had, had Peter not been called out. Let's say that Paul, he, he just didn't want to make a fuss. He didn't want to make a mess of it. He didn't want to fight the fight. He just let it go. I'm just going to leave him alone. The gospel would have been lost. There would have been major divisions in the early church. It's more, so significant, you wonder if it would even withstand that sort of division. But it's because that Peter was rebuked publicly that Christians understood the importance of that rebuke. And it's because Peter received that rebuke well that other Christians followed, they not only followed his lead into sin, but they followed his lead into repentance as well. Isn't that a, isn't that a privilege to be able to, to know that it can work like that? Because when you and I mess up, right, we, we typically drag people along with us into that pit. But when we repent and when we admit that we're wrong, we can also drag people along with us into, you know, the real Christian life and real Christian community and, 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 and the real benefits that are there. We can admit, right, we can admit and benefit from the church. and We don't have it all together. It's okay. It's the same for you and I. I want to live in real church. I don't want to live in hypocritical world all the time. I'm there a lot. So are you, but I don't want to exist there all the time. I want there to be real change. I want us to be a church that's willing to undergo real change and be open to it all the time because we're all a work in progress collectively. So that's, that's what I wanted to challenge you to think about in your life. I don't know the specific details or circumstances going on in your life right now. You may be button heads hard with somebody, and if that's you, Maybe they're rightfully criticizing you. Maybe they're wrongfully criticizing you. But you know, if, if you're in a tight spot in your marriage or whatever, and you're just really butting heads, it should be really easy to admit that, you know, you don't have it all together. 
it should be really easy to apologize whenever you're both resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're not perfect. I don't, have, I don't respond perfectly. I don't get it right every single day. But in Christ and through the gospel, we can pursue a life of repentance together. That's what Peter and Paul did. That's what we should do. Let's pray to that end today. Lord, I thank you for this scenario that we're given in Scripture. We tend to elevate leaders in the church um, to think that they do no wrong. But Lord, the only perfectly righteous one is you. Lord, in our own day, we elevate different scholars and pastors and things like that. We think, man, they must never mess up. No, nobody must rebuke them. But Lord, if, if, there, if we're going to have any sort of consistency and longevity in the Christian life, uh, it's going to entail real rebuke and we're going to need to receive it. Lord, I pray for those in here today that needed to hear this lesson. Lord, sometimes we so easily fall back in the familiar sin of pride and elevating our ego above everything else, always having to be right all the time, and we want everybody to know it. Lord, help us to repent of that today. Help us to be free from that sort of slavery to perfection. And help us to live in the freedom uh, that you have available to us through your son, Jesus. Mm -hmm.